Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we started on chapter 13 last week, we spent quite a bit of time in chapter 12. Chapter 12 is where Paul addresses the subject of spiritual gifts and talks about how each of us are unique and have different capacities and different abilities, and God's created us to work together to make a good team approach to, to life and to representing Him well. But in Corinth, they were having problems with this. People were thinking that they were better than others, that their gifts were more important than others, and they weren't getting along very well. And so Paul addressed all of that, and at the end of chapter 12, he interrupts his talk on the gifts, and he says, you guys are all fired up about wanting the best gifts, but he said, I show you a, a more excellent way. I have something better in mind for you than for you to just focus on your individual gifts. And he starts this discussion in chapter 13 about love. He'll return to a discussion on the gifts when he gets to chapter 14, but he stops here to focus on it because it's so important. As I said last week, I, I think in many ways, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is maybe the most important chapter in the Bible. It's certainly a chapter in the Bible that frightens me the most because as we saw last week, he said, I don't care how gifted you are. You can communicate with tongues of men and of angels. You can talk a good game. But without love, it just sounds like noise. And he said, you can have so much knowledge and you can have so much faith that you can move mountains. You can be a world changer. But without love, you're nothing. And he said, you can give of yourself tirelessly. Give everything that you have to the poor. If you want, you can give your body to be burned. You can burn out trying to serve God. But if his love doesn't come through, it doesn't profit you anything. It's a, it's a complete waste. And that is a sobering thing for me, as I shared with you last week. The possibility that somehow I would pour my life out and have it be for nothing. Have it just soak into the ground and amount to nothing because I didn't get love, because that love didn't come out. Now, people have said that 1 Corinthians 13 is a definition of love, but I really don't think that it is as we look through it. I think we know what love is. And I believe that if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, that love has been planted in your life already. The love is there. It's really a question of whether you're going to let it show or not, or whether you're going to suffocate his love, quench the spirit enough that love doesn't come forth, that it doesn't manifest itself, that the fruit of the Spirit isn't allowed to really grow and shine forth from your life. And so in discussing love, rather than say, oh, here's all the things that love is, he more focuses on those things that will keep our love from really being productive and fruitful. And so, in a way, he's giving us a hint as to some of the things that we can do to make our life meaningless, to cause all of our talent to be just poured out on the ground, to not amount to anything. And so, it's, and it's, it's, it's a positive message, definitely, because God wants our lives to radiate his love. But at the same time, 
We sure don't want to waste our lives by that not happening. So he gives us some real practical input after last week he established for us, this matters more than anything. This involves who God is. God is love. Get that or you don't have anything. So now beginning with verse 4, begins to talk about love. And he says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Love suffers long. Now, there's something to be said for suffering long. Sometimes this word is translated love is patient, um, and that's not bad. The reason it's translated here suffers long is that gets to the root of what the, the word actually means, suffering long. The, the word that's translated suffer long is two different words that are put together. And one of them is the word macro, which you might know means long. And the second word is the word thumia, which in the Greek refers to breathing hard, breathing long. The idea, they put those two together, and they're talking about when things happen that interrupt our lives in a way that increases our breathing. What do we do with that? Isn't it amazing how another person can take control of our biological processes? Isn't it incredible how somebody I've never met before can be in another car, and I'm in my car, and he can make a move, snake me for a parking place, or just cut in front of me, or come dangerously close to me, and all of a sudden my heart's beating faster, and as a result I'm hyperventilating, I'm breathing harder myself to get oxygen into my body, and it's like, how did that guy do that? But that's the image of long-suffering that he's talking about here. It's the idea, though, that you keep breathing. <laughs> you know, okay, you're, you see something happening, and you're going, <sighs> and he goes, do that for a long time. One, two, three, four, keep breathing. It's kind of like, you know, if you've had the dubious blessing of being there for the birth of a child. You know, you know, and I, I've said this before, the, the good old days when the woman goes and has the baby while the man sits out in the waiting room and reads Sports Illustrated, to me, that's the way God designed it. But <laughs> now they've got us into the process, and you take the class, and basically you learn to breathe. Well, the one thing that I learned from that um, is that when you start breathing hard from discomfort, it's important to set a pace and to continue to breathe. And if you have a coach who's like no coach I've ever seen, but who, because when I tried to help Ann by really coaching her, she didn't appreciate it. I, I coached her the way I coach other people. No, it didn't work. But what they want you to do is to be really loving and to just go, okay, breathe with me, breathe with me. The idea is when you have pain, it modifies your breathing. But long-suffering that Paul's talking about here is learn to keep breathing. Don't hold your breath and don't continue to breathe harder and faster. Don't allow your physical reaction to others to accelerate in an unhealthy way. Another good translation for this would be suck it up. You know, just realize, you know, life hurts. 
this may hurt, this may be painful, but don't let that completely dominate you and who you are and how you're reacting. Be willing to suffer. Be willing to suffer for a while. Now, when it says to suffer long, it doesn't mean, oh, you have to suffer indefinitely. Sometimes when you suffer for a while, you realize, I don't need to do this. There's an easy way to put a stop to this suffering. Sometimes we continue to bang our heads against a wall and to suffer forever, make our lives miserable, subject ourselves to unpleasantness for, for no reason, and that's just foolishness. But at the same time, we'll never be able to live life unless we're, unless we're willing to deal with some pain, unless we are willing to continue to breathe to calm ourselves down. But it's not just about that long suffering, because he puts with it the idea of kindness. And that's all one phrase. Love suffers long and is kind. You know, anyone can suffer long. They just have to be with someone who's miserable to be around. And you tie someone up or handcuff them, you can make them suffer for a long time. But that isn't admirable, and it's not something that I would recommend. But the big deal that he's saying here is, get yourself in a painful situation. Can you be kind while you are going through that trial, because that's what love does. If you're loving when things are going well, if you're nice to people who are nice to you, that's nothing. That's not love. That's just simple, natural responses and reciprocation. Love, when it's tested, is when you can be kind when someone is being difficult. And that's what we all need, because we're all difficult sometimes. This word for kind, you know, the English word kind means to treat someone like they're a member of your family. The word kindred or kin is where this English word comes from. And that's a, that's a good take on it. What, what this word in the Greek means, though, is to act like an employee and to show yourself as an employee, really, and, and equip yourself for acting like you work somewhere. How does that connect to kindness? Well, you know, if you're, if you're any good at your job at all, and you have to deal with people in your job, you realize there are sometimes times when you have to be nice when someone else isn't. Because you have to diffuse a situation. If somebody else is going off, and so you go off, it escalates the situation. But a good employee is someone who realizes, I am paid to take this. I am compensated for putting up with this kind of garbage. And as a result, I will be patient, I will be nice, I will be friendly, even if other people aren't. Now, some people just can't do this. Because of their pride, they just would say, I could never do that job. Other people I see are just amazing. Sometimes I'm in a store and there's someone who's just being so rude to a clerk or to someone who's working in the store and they're just nice back. They're just patient and loving back and, and I think, wow, that's really something. Well, someone equipped them well to learn their job. That's just your job. As a pastor, there are certain responses that are expected of me as a pastor you know, and sometimes I can be a magnet for garbage. But when that happens, I realize, okay, a part of my job is to listen to people, even if they're upset with me, even if they're mad at me or they don't like me, 
And to sit there and act like it doesn't bother me and to be patient enough to try to diffuse the situation because that's my job. That's what I do. And so if someone's just mad at me, I get mad back at them. I'm not doing a very good job. Now, what we need to understand, all of us, is that whether you're a pastor or not, you have a job. Your job is to represent Jesus Christ to this world. And the impression that they get of you is often going to be the impression that they get of him. And he's your boss. He pays you well. And he says, here's how I'm training you to react so that you can diffuse situations and not make them worse. There are some stores that just do an amazing job of this. And I think of Nordstrom's as an example of that. And you know, Nordstrom's, if you go there, you're paying way too much for your clothes. But it's worth, leave your credit card in the car and just go into the store and watch how they treat people. They, it's unfailing. And that's why people will shop there even though they know, man, this is a little more than I ought to pay for this. But they treat you with respect. They treat you like you're important. They treat you like they know you. And simply, the people at Nordstrom's, from what I've seen, act like Christians when they're waiting on customers. And that's what Paul is saying here is, hey, in your life, how about at least act as nice as a Nordstrom's employee? I mean, if you want to start, even act like somebody at the rack. They're a little <laughs> lower level, but you know, <laughs> they're the ones that flunked out of the training, I think. But still, <laughs> he's going... Life is going to test you. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. But keep breathing and act like a professional. Act like somebody whose job it is to be mature and grown up, to not act like a baby, to not respond the way everyone else does. And again, if we don't learn how to do that, we can be so loving and so caring, and yet ultimately, when we're under pressure, and we give in to that pressure, and we react in a way that's unkind, then all that concern that's in our hearts doesn't mean anything. We may be very loving, but again, what does it amount to if you're someone who can't deal with a little pain and be nice while that's going on? Now he goes on and says, love does not envy the Greek word there that's translated envy, that's probably not a good translation. It's the word that we transliterate as zealous. It's zealous. It's zelao. And what the word means is to boil, is to get hot and to boil over. Now, envy could certainly be that way, but I think to translate it as envy is kind of a stress, a stretch. It's, it, usually in the New Testament, it's just translated as zealous or, you know, worked up, that kind of a thing. So it's a continuation, I think, of what he was saying earlier. Now, back in the last verse of chapter 12, when he said, you know, that you earnestly desire the best gifts, it's the same word, zelao. It's the same thing he's saying. You're all boiled up and fired over and worked up about gifts, but I have something more important. I have a more excellent way. So now, again, this picture is developing of someone who is going through a difficult time, and now they're starting to be less than kind, and, or they're trying to be kind, and it's just working up inside them, and they're about to 
boil over and explode. He goes, that's not what love does. Now, you can be a very loving person, but if you're exploding and boiling over, no one's going to believe that you're loving. I, I talk to people a lot who are having problems with anger in their relationships. And many times I'm convinced that this person really does deeply love their family, loves their spouse and their children. And I know it's in there. They, they show it in a lot of ways by working hard to provide for them, by being faithful, and they can tell you how much they care. But what happens is every once in a while, they get under pressure, and they boil up, and it explodes out. And, you know, one explosion of anger wipes out lots and lots of expressions of love. And that's why, again, Paul is saying, if you can't deal with this boiling over problem, then it doesn't matter how much you love. Nobody's going to see it. No one's going to believe it. Ultimately, if you're a person who boils over and explodes, you're not going to have anyone to love. No one wants to be around you. That frightens them. It's scary. And so he says, when it comes to love, learn how to deal with that pressure Learn how to deal with that pain in a way other than exploding and boiling over. So many of the people who are in jail today, they aren't bad people. Some of them are. But a lot of them, you meet them, they're just people who one day hit their limit. And it just boiled over. And it exploded with a, with a wrong response, with an unconstructive response. And ultimately... That doesn't get you out of jail to say, yeah, but you're a real nice guy. An explosion is costly. And Paul says it runs contrary to what a love that really works and functions does. So we see, okay, you can waste your life if you're a person who can't learn to deal with pain and still be polite and nice and friendly. If you're a person who boils over, you can ruin everything that you care about. You can destroy every relationship that you're looking for. But he goes on and we get some more insights in what he says after that. He says, love does not parade itself and is not puffed up. This gets to, I think, the source of the problem. Someone who parades themselves Literally, the word means to brag about yourself over and over again. But the idea is someone who thinks the world revolves around them. It's that narcissistic sort of characteristic that believes that what matters most is how I look and what people think of me and how they treat me. The universe revolves around me. And that kind of primping and preening and overly concerned about yourself, ultimately, as he calls it, being puffed up, literally to be inflated. You just get a bigger view of yourself than you really are, and you're blowing yourself up to make yourself look bigger than you are. That's the source of ultimately not being able to deal with pain, not being able to have decent relationships with people, not being able to communicate to people, I care about you, and not being able to form relationships that will reciprocate that love. It, it comes down to this selfish, self-centeredness that our society is so good at asking for, 
And basically, at its root, it's pretending to be something that you aren't to try to fool people into thinking something about you that isn't true. It's a, it's, a, it's a sick behavior that causes people to tell lies about themselves, to misrepresent themselves. What does that do when you build up those kinds of expectations? Oh man, the pressure's on. What if people figure out who I really am? Parading yourself. And so often, and it's sad because when we see someone who parades themselves, who loves to be up in front of people, who's concerned about what people think of them all the time, generally our reaction is, you're disgusting. You're going to parade yourself. I'm not going to watch the parade. In reality, people who parade themselves are people who are really insecure. What I am saying when I'm constantly faking who I am, when I'm constantly acting like something that I'm not, what I'm really saying is the person who I really am just isn't good enough. And so I better convince you that I'm bigger than I am. And so I, I blow myself up. I, I exaggerate myself. I'm constantly focused and worried about what people think of me. It's all about me. It revolves around me. It's really a sad thing. But it will remove love from your life. It will remove loved ones from your life. Because nobody wants to hear all about you. Nobody wants it to be all about you. Everyone cares about themselves. And scriptures tell us, you know, it's so important to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, you don't take that verse and go, so you need to learn to love yourself so that you can love your neighbor. That's not what it's saying. Everyone loves themselves. You just read on and it says that. Start thinking more about other people than you do about yourself. You'll find out it'll be a lot better for yourself as well. But parading yourself. Hollywood has made this into a way of life. You know, it used to be that people made movies they understood. They were playing a part. When they walked away from the studio, oh, they weren't still on stage all the time. They led their lives. Nowadays, being a celebrity is a calling in and of itself. And now we have all these paparazzi running around chasing these self-important people, wanting to catch pictures of them everywhere. You go to an award show, all the important people, half of them you never heard of them, you don't even know who they are, but they pull up to the red carpet and get out of their limousine and start posing for pictures and say a couple of things and nod to some invisible people and then they move on to the place where they have the logos on the wall and they pose for pictures and, and, and then they live their life that way, these poor people. I, I feel bad for them when you watch the, the paparazzi taking pictures of them everywhere they go. They go to a restaurant, paparazzi everywhere, following them everywhere they go. Well, did you ever notice? They're all at the same restaurants. The paparazzi just go wait at the four or five restaurants in Hollywood, and if you want to be seen, that's where you go. I mean, if some poor celebrity is feeling like, I just want a quiet night out to myself, go to Arby's or Carl's Jr. or something, you know, there's no paparazzi going to be bothering you. They sit there and they go to Mr. Chow's and they're like, of course they're going to take your picture. People go to Mr. Chow's to get their picture taken. Well, some of us don't do that, but the same way we lived our lives is almost the same way. 
always worried about what people think of us, always upset if we don't get the respect that's due to us. And our society programs us that way. It's like we, we are in a society of pretending and faking it. And we start even with the kids. You know, some, and I, I understand what they're trying to do, but now in kids' sports where, oh, they don't keep score and everyone gets a trophy, you know, you can learn a lot by losing sometimes. And if you don't learn to lose and you think you always get the trophy, you're going to grow up to be, well, Paris Hilton. But, <laughs> but no, she's a fine person, I'm sure. She learned so much from going to jail. But um, I, just, I shouldn't pick on her anyway. But um, what happens is you become this preening, self-absorbed person because everybody's always telling you how great you are for doing nothing. You get rewarded for just nothing. And so you think, hey, great. I can act like a winner. And that makes me a winner. And we begin to pretend. And we can never come to the place in our lives where we can just accept who we are. We know, hey, if I don't inflate myself... If I don't exaggerate myself, people will discover that I'm not as important as other people are. And so we play these games whereby we know it's a game. We know it's fake. You know, when you ask someone, how do I look? Of course, they're going to say you look great. Does that really make you feel a lot better when you beg for a compliment and you get it? Of course not. But that's a game that we play. Those are motions that we go through. And then we convince ourselves that, you know, the great thing is, doesn't matter how much you eat, wear black and nobody will notice. And it's like, come on, no, it doesn't work that way. But if we pretend like it does, then maybe it will. And we play these games where we fake all sorts of things. I mean, I look at, at my bald head, and it's a shame, really. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not particularly attractive to me. It's kind of pathetic. And, you know, but, but then I look at all the alternative ways of getting that hair back, and they look even worse. And like, people are paying huge amounts of money to have their hair look like it's all stapled in, all neat rows, or you know, some rug that everybody goes, wow, that's great, you can't even tell. You can, come on, you can tell every time. You, you can see the celebrities that pay $10,000 for their rug. You can still tell. Who are you fooling? But we play that game because it's like, makes me feel better about myself. It makes life a little less painful for me. No, it doesn't. It makes it more painful because you start programming this stuff into your head that now you have something to live up to. Now you ought to be treated in a way that's worthy of the lies that you've created, of the games that you've played. I see some people, and again, I'm, I don't want to judge anybody, but people who get a lot of work done, you know, surgically and on their face to make them look younger. And you go, wow, you look so much younger. It doesn't make you look younger. You look plastic. No one, when they were young, looks like this, you know? And I, I mean, but we put all this money into it and inject all this stuff, and so let's all just pretend that someone with a plastic face really looks young. You know, as you get older, you earn your wrinkles. Enjoy them. Accept it. Go, this is who I am. And again, if, you, if it makes you feel better, Fine. Sorry for disrupting your game. 
believe what you want. But here's what happens. Can you really live up to it? When the doctor tells you how great you look, and then your friends tell you how great you look, and then you look at yourself and go, I remember when I had expressions on my face, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and do you really buy it? Are you really fooling yourself? You think you're really fooling anyone? And here Paul's just going, don't be someone who's on parade. Don't love to be the center of attention. Don't live in a world whereby you are the center of the universe. It's really what craziness is, ultimately, is when you design your own reality and insist on living in it. What does that do to you? Oh, it works for a while. But ultimately, there's something deep down inside where you go, I know I am not who people think I am. I know that I can't live up to the game that I'm playing. I'm scared to death somebody's going to notice who I really am. And that's a frightening prospect. And so what happens? I become more and more sensitive. If somebody asks questions of me, I get angry and boil over. I can become bitter and resentful. I start to design my life so that I'm only exposed to people who are, are you know, mindlessly praising me. I avoid anyone who has anything possibly critical to say because I would rather be fooled into thinking that I'm great than to actually make some changes in my life that might make me more successful and greater. It becomes just about the parade. And I'm blowing myself up like some Macy's inflatable person floating down the street, and everybody's going, yeah, if you squint, it looks good. You know? But deep down inside, I know who I am. I know I'm full of hot air. And, and Paul's just going, hey, if you want to derail love in your life, make yourself the center of attention. Make it so that the show is about you. Just fake it. And that'll ruin love, because it does every time. I think just about every time we boil over, I think just about every time we get, say, I can't take it anymore, every time we're less than kind, ultimately what we're showing is, you don't love me as much as I love me. You're not treating me the way you ought to treat me. You're not playing the game with me. I'm supposed to say something, and you're supposed to believe it. And when you stop believing it, now, that we, now I'm not going to play. And the love goes because we get upset, and we boil over, and we get angry, and we push people away from us because they're rattling our cage. They're destroying our illusion. It started in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, <laughs> you know, they sinned, and they realized right away something's wrong here. We're naked. So they got some fig leaves and sewed them up, and finally when God came and found them, they were standing there obviously naked with these goofy fig leaves on, and they go, what? You know, like, I didn't do anything. And God goes, you ate of the fruit, didn't you? And they start blaming each other, and and we've been playing that game ever since. And when somebody hits us in the face with the truth, it hurts. 
When someone hits us in the face with the truth, it will cause us to react against it and ultimately cause that anger to boil up. I've been caught. I've been exposed. That's our vulnerability, ultimately, is our phoniness. But God desires always for us to just be who we are. We don't have to play games. He died for us the way we are. He accepts us the way we are. He didn't save us so that we can learn to play a new game. He saved us so we can feel secure and safe in his love and then freely give that love to others and not live in an alternative universe, not live with the pressure of, oh, I hope no one discovers who I really am. It's sad how we've turned so often even religion, relationships with God, into just a big game of phoniness, where it's sometimes the phoniest game of all. It's, it's sad. It's really tragic. I did a wedding yesterday, and it was in a really fancy church, and because we were serving communion, I had to wear vestments, the fancy priest outfit. And so, I mean, I really looked hot. <laughs> but as I was putting on this white robe, and then I had this fancy purple one with all this brocade down it, and, there, and it was like, I was thinking, on the one hand, I was thinking, oh man, I hope I don't see anybody I know. The bad thing is, like, I knew everyone in the wedding, <laughs> and so I knew I had to walk out. But I thought to myself, as I was get, they were getting me ready back in the room, I thought, how sad that for some people, this is the way they have to represent God, that you have to put a, a fancy purple robe on in order to feel like, now I'm getting respect. It didn't get me any respect, believe me. Um, it helped when I pointed out that my dress was fancier than the bride's. But, <laughs> but as I sat there with that stupid gown on and saw my wife snapping away... I thought, how sad that sometimes this is what we do to a relationship with God, that we fake it, that we dress it up, that we play a game, that we pretend. And I'll tell you something, that's a hard game to live up to. That's a hard image to really satisfy ultimately. And when we decide that we'll settle for living in the Truman Show, for living in something that's just a, a fake version of what reality is, that becomes our life, love is going to get snuffed out completely. Ultimately, the love is still there, but you can't show it because there's too much pressure. You're too afraid that you'll be discovered. You're too afraid that somebody won't respect you if you are who you are. So you keep the game up. You play it. Put yourself on parade. You inflate yourself, and you're scared to death somebody's going to come along and pop that balloon, shatter that illusion. And so, frankly, a phony life, there's just too much pressure in a phony life to be really loving, to enjoy your spouse, to enjoy your kids. Too much pressure to let your hair down with people and just be yourself. Oh, you can't do that. They might not like who I really am. To be seen without your outfit, your makeup, or whatever. Oh, no, I can't do that. People might think I'm what I know I am. <laughs> How silly. 
How sad. The result ultimately is our love gets suffocated by our act. The parade takes the place of real life. And we spend our days and our nights and our life just trying to be something we aren't, hoping that somebody believes the lie, plays along with the game. That's not love. That doesn't work. Ultimately, that will always leave you hurting and frustrated and boiled over. The most freeing thing in the world, the abundant life that God promises for us, comes when you finally accept who you really are and realize he loves you that way. He's not asking you to impress anybody, play any games. It's not about you anyway. Don't inflate yourself so much. You're just an employee. You just work here like the rest of us. You're just doing what God tells you to do, following him, trying to represent him. But you don't own the store. You just work here. The pressure's off you. There's no reason for you to feel this burden. And when you're relieved of that burden, you feel the love is able to flow again. It's able to work again. It's why when you do it right, marriage can become better and better the older you get. Because at first, you're afraid that someone would discover who you are. Ultimately, if you've been married for a long time, you realize most of the secrets are gone. The person's still here, and you go, this is pretty cool. This feels really comfortable. This is feeling like I'm finally remembering who I am. I don't have to impress or fake it anymore. And that's ultimately the way God wants us to live our lives. That's love that has grown and matured and flourished. Love that can be expressed and received freely. And when we have that kind of a mature love, we don't have to knee-jerk react to things that happen in our lives. And we don't have to feel like every time somebody cuts in front of us, it makes us not important. They must hate us. Oh, they don't even know you're there. You don't matter. It's good to get to the point sometimes where you realize, I don't matter that much. It doesn't depend on me. It's not about me. To live your life on parade, and believe me, I understand, society and sometimes parents and teachers, there are a whole lot of people who tried really hard to tell us that we needed to dress it up and show off and parade ourselves. I, it just makes me sick when I see some of these, and sorry if you participate in these, but these little girl beauty pageants where they take these little girls and teach them to be phony and fake. And I think, how messed up is that person going to be someday? What a horrible thing to believe that you have to get painted up in order to be impressive and valuable. Well, you know, maybe none of us are going to be a little beauty queen. But to live our lives on parade, at the center of things, expecting everyone else to be the extras that help us to be the best that we can be, will ruin your life. Ultimately, love doesn't come out of that. Resentment comes out of that. Anger and frustration comes out of that. Let's ask God to help us to accept ourselves the way he accepted us. When he looked at us in our, in our ugliness 
and said, you are worth dying for. You are someone that I would rather die for you than to spend eternity without you. What could be more valuable than that? And that's for real. And then he says, I'm going to set you free. And whom the Son sets free will be free indeed. Free to really just love and to be loved. Shut down the parade. Turn off the compressor. You don't have to make yourself anything more. You're a person who's loved by the God who made you. And when we understand that, the pressure's off. Love can begin to flow. We're capable of having some normal relationships. That's what he wants for us. To do otherwise is to waste all of your energy, all of your time, all of your best intended efforts that were designed to make somebody believe a lie, even if it works. It's just emptiness. Usually it won't work. When it doesn't, you boil over. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you sent Jesus for us to live as a man, to deal with all of the disgrace and humiliation that sometimes comes along with life, especially life for someone whose parentage was a bit questionable. People talked about him being born illegitimately. And then ultimately, as he was sacrificed, and yet he didn't utter a word, he didn't boil over. He didn't explode in anger. He emptied himself. God, you showed us how to do that. The result for Jesus was that he got a name which is above every name. He's highly exalted, glorified in heaven. Lord, help us to learn those lessons so that we can really enjoy love, so that we can really enjoy other people so that we can get out of the play and get into real life, life in the Spirit. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us, for being patient with us, that when we get all globbed up with our phony stage makeup and parade ourselves, you just shake your head and you still love us. And you try to love us back to reality. Thank you, Lord for doing that for us. Help us to be real and understand that that's good enough for you and for it to be good enough for us as well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.